yay, oh yay, oh yay. He was very conscious that the worst thing a judge can do is enter a decision that he can't enforce. And he stuck his neck out. And Judge Johnson, you know, he says it was easy to make that decision. I'm not so sure that everyone in this room would have made that decision back then against her own culture, against her own relatives, and having Plessy versus Ferguson on point. That was a very, very great decision by Judge Johnson. Nonetheless, it is fair to say that his courage, his brilliance, his dedication to the cause of social justice, the scores of groundbreaking cases that he won, helped form the backbone of a movement that brought about social change in this city and this state and ultimately in American history. Welcome to Hidden Legal Figures Spotlight on Lawyers and Judges in the Civil Rights Revolution. I'm Derek Alexander Pope, Managing Director of the Arc of Justice Institute, and we are extremely delighted to be a part of the 50th anniversary of the Southern Conference of Bar Presidents Annual Meeting. Daryl, thank you so much for extending an invitation to us to be here. It means a great deal, and I really appreciate it. His name was Harry Calvin Jr. He was a law professor at the University of Chicago School of Law, and in the early 1960s, he was studying and writing about and lecturing on the impact that the civil rights movement had on First Amendment jurisprudence. Quite naturally, he was focused on the rights to free speech, assembly, and of course, the right to petition the government for the redress of grievances. In 1965, he wrote a book called The Negro and the First Amendment, and he made a startling revelation. In it, he wrote, the civil rights movement was the first revolution in history conducted on advice of counsel. Now, you and I know that museums and history books and documentaries have made the generals, the lieutenants, and foot soldiers who fought that revolution household names. But the legal figures that provided the advice and counsel that shaped and sustained the success of that revolution, they remain hidden far too long. It is the goal of the Arc of Justice Institute to bring them into plain view. And the program that you're about to experience is one of three ways that we're doing that. We've assembled this morning for you some very impressive individuals to talk about one lawyer and one judge who are emblematic of the work that lawyers and judges did during that pivotal moment in American history. We have Judge Myron H. Thompson, judge of the United States District Court for the Middle District of Alabama, who succeeded the Judge Frank Johnson, who's one of our figures we're gonna spotlight. His former law clerk, Peter Canfield, a partner in the Atlanta office of Jones Day, and the chair of our State Bar of Georgia Cornerstones of, Cornerstones of Freedom program. And we also have a biographer of the lawyer we're spotlighting, Professor Maurice Daniels, to talk about Donald Lee Hollowell. Our presenters and our subjects have great star power. And it was only fitting to get our conversation started that we have someone of equal lumin luminescence and we are proud today to have to open our conversation 
weekend anchor at CNN, Frederica Whitfield. So as Daryl mentions, this is a great program. I want you to go ahead and experience knowing about these hidden legal figures. And we'll now begin our program with our moderator, Ms. Frederica Whitfield. <laughs> All right, can everybody hear me? Good morning. That's my mic check too. Can you guys hear me okay back there? All right. Well, good to see you all. This is fantastic. Uh, today we're paying homage to, and of course, also recognizing extraordinary individuals in the judicial system. They follow their conscience, following the law, challenging law, and its interpretations and applications, all in the name of human rights and civil rights. And thanks, of course, to Derek for being the brainchild of this extraordinary venture that we're all gonna be on today to further educate us about the people we know and those who we should know more about and their paths. So there are so many soldiers in this ongoing fight for civil rights. You need to know more about these individuals, which is why, um, despite a lot of breaking news, I don't know if you noticed, there's a lot going on out there. <laughs> I am super glad and really honored to have been able to be a part of this first session that we're gonna to have today. And how fitting that we are going to be highlighting the breakthrough work of federal judge Frank M. Johnson, who made tremendous marks in Alabama while the city of Montgomery, Alabama, known for the impactful march from Montgomery to Selma more than 50 years ago, Rosa Parks marks John Lewis's sacrifice and leadership, that today, this week, that city would once again make history, electing its first black mayor in Stephen Reed. All of this is interconnected, it's not by mistake. So Judge Frank Johnson, known for so many moments, civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. once calling him, quote, the man who gave true meaning to the word justice. Johnson's legal decisions desegregated schools in Alabama, busing in Montgomery, eliminating the state poll tax, allowed blacks to serve on juries, and authorized the 1965 Civil Rights March from, Selma to, from Montgomery to Selma. Uh, many other rulings also had far-reaching impact toward achieving civil rights for blacks, inmates, and the mentally ill. Peter Canfield, knows him well, had the great honor of being his law clerk. And thank goodness I have him with me, you can join me right now, <laughs> to help us on this journey of understanding the legacy of Judge Frank M. Johnson. Hi, Peter. Yes. Make sure it's working, is that, can people hear me? Okay, everybody's good? All right, great. So let's talk about this extraordinary legacy. I mean, there is so there there really is so much to cover, but we're gonna kind of truncate it, you know, down to about 15 minutes or so. So, you know, tell me about what you did experience was really behind the motivation of Judge Johnson's method of rule. Um well it let me tell you a little bit about his his background uh, and set the stage a little bit for um, 
sort of how he came to be in the position he was in when he was there. Um, Judge Johnson was appointed to the bench in Montgomery in 1955 by President Eisenhower. At the time, he was 37 years old, then the youngest federal judge uh, in the country. Um, he, he was not from Montgomery. In fact, he was from Northern Alabama. Uh, he was a Republican. Um, he, in fact, the part of the state that he was from, the county, was sometimes referred to as the Free State of Winston because during the Civil War, when Alabama seceded from the Union, Winston County attempted to secede from Alabama. Um, he got his law degree from the University of Alabama, where he was a uh, classmate and friend of George Wallace. He fought in the infantry in World War II. Um, in fact, in the Battle of the Bulge, where he was injured, he received two Purple Hearts. He was actually first in the national news while he was still in the Army. Uh, he represented a number of enlisted men who were uh, court-martialed for brutalizing prisoners at a prison camp in England. And he, in, in, as was reported in Time and Newsweek, he really, his defense was to really aggressively push back at their commanders for being responsible. Um, after the war, he returned uh, to a small town in Northwest Alabama, Jasper, to practice law. Uh, he was in private practice when President Eisenhower appointed him uh, to be the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. And then eventually he became, uh, the, shortly thereafter, he was appointed to the bench in Montgomery. And to set the stage, to set the scene a little bit, uh, in 1954 was when the United States Supreme Court decided Brown versus Board of Education, the school desegregation case. Well, it was one year later that Judge Johnson was put on the bench in Montgomery. Three weeks after he assumed the bench was when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus to a white person and was, was arrested and charged. That led to the Montgomery bus boycott, which catapulted in, into fame uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, who was then 26 years old and had just arrived in Montgomery to be the pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. It was one of Judge Johnson's first, his first major case was really to consider the issue of whether the law that Rosa Parks had violated that allowed segregation of buses in Montgomery, whether that was uh, legal and constitutional. There was a challenge. There was a three-judge court called. Uh, judge Johnson was the junior judge on that court, and uh, that court ruled in a divided decision that uh, just as Brown versus Board of Education had found that segregation in public schools violated the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution, that that principle should be extended not just to public schools, as the dissenting judge thought it should be confined, 
but to all public facilities. And through decision after the decision following that uh, rule, um, Judge Johnson applied that same principle to desegregate all the things you said. And, and that underscored how he followed his conscience, yet at the same time, willing to challenge the law and challenge others. And, you know, a couple of things that you mentioned, you know, George Wallace, the, the relationship, you know, he used that relationship um, and also perhaps George Wallace benefited from the relationship in that they were ever, still able to challenge one another even though they didn't see things the same way. And it would be later that Governor Wallace would acknowledge that he was wrong on the issue of school desegre desegregation, which they sparred over, and that Judge Johnson was right. So um, wielding that kind of influence, did Judge Johnson, was he aware of that and the power of that position to be able to do that? The power of, I think Judge Johnson felt very strongly and as law clerks he um, communicated that to us that uh, his decisions, legal opinions, they weren't for lawyers. They were for lawyers of course in one sense but you had to be able to explain your decision to people in a way that they understood it. And if you could do that, then um, that was the only way people would, would obey those decisions. If they understood them, if they did understand them, they'd understand why they were fair, and, and that, that, would, that would give him the power that, uh, that he did. He, he was very conscious that um, a judge's decisions are only, that, that the worst thing a judge can do is enter a decision that he can't enforce. Because if you do that, you really show that you really don't have that much power and you make yourself subject to uh, disobedience and, and all that. So he was, uh, very attuned to that. Um, for example, um, when he issued his decision that allowed the Selma to Montgomery march to go forward, he didn't issue that just based on seeing what the whole nation saw in the news of people being beaten at the, at the bridge. He held a week of hearings. He heard testimony uh, from both the marchers and from the state uh, he considered uh, details about the logistics. This was an enormous uh, uh, undertaking. It, it was. I mean, this is you know the main artery across uh, Alabama, and and this march would essentially substantially close it for a long period of time. What do you believe? What do you believe he was considering when making these decisions? Well, I think he. I think he really did want to make sure he made the right decision and he wanted to hear the facts, but he also wanted to make a record so that people could understand why he made the decision he did. So that Do you know what that compass of you know, putting yourself in the direction of what you believe is right? Do you know and, and did you get a grasp of what his compass was? Yeah, I think and and he was very uh, emphatic that his compass wasn't his own morality. It was his understanding of the law and the facts. Um, 
so it, it wasn't, um, he didn't sort of decide cases from his gut. He didn't feel like he was doing that. He understood that, you know, the experience he brought to uh, his personal experiences, that affects how you view things, but he still viewed them very much as, as legal, solid legal decisions. So the case that effectively ended the Montgomery bus boycott, um, one of the first big cases that you touched on, and this is Browder versus Gale, and this was an extension of the Rosa Parks you know, refusal um, to get off the seat in the bus, uh, to give up her seat. Um, so what do we believe the real evolution of this was for Judge Johnson? Um, well, let's, I, I, we'll show it in a second. Let me set it up a little bit. Um, uh, one thing that happened when I, there was, I was fortunate to have happened when I was clerking was the judge had never given a televised interview before. I, when I clerked for him, he had just gone up on the, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. So I think he felt a little less pressured than he was when he was a district court judge and a little more free to, to talk more freely than he had. He agreed to do an interview with Bill Moyers, who was then a PBS correspondent. Bill Moyers had been, you know, LBJ's press secretary, um, longtime television correspondent. He wanted to interview the judge, um, and that interview took place when I was clerking. Um, Bill Moyers thought was prepared to tape four hours to get a two-hour show, he ended up just taping two hours uh, because it was, it just flowed from Judge Johnson. Uh, but one of the questions that uh, Bill Moyers, one of the subjects he went into was the Rosa Parks case, mm -hmm. and he asked him how did that, what was it like in that judge's conference room when that case came up? Mm -hmm. So we've got a, two clips talking about okay. that. When you were discussing that case in your private chambers after it had been argued, the junior member of the court votes first. The senior member of the court votes last. That's uh, followed uh, uh, throughout the system. That's to keep the senior member from influencing the junior member in his vote. And you voted first. So Judge Reeves, Frank, says, what do you think about this case? I, I don't think segregation in any public facilities is constitutional violates the uh, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, Judge. <clears throat> That's all I had to say. I, it, it didn't take me long to express myself. Uh, the, the law was clear. And I might add this, Bill. <clears throat> the law to me uh, was clear in practically every one of these cases that I've decided where race was involved. I had no problem with uh, the case where we outlawed uh, the poll tax, uh, charging people to vote. Uh, I had no problem with uh, uh, the museums, uh, the libraries, the public parks, uh, or any public facilities. The law will not tolerate discrimination on the basis of race. And there's one additional segment. Well, what did Judge Reeves say to you? Well, when it came to Judge Reeves' time to vote, he said I feel the same way. Yeah. That was the announcement. Sure. Sure. 
Well, I guess we do it based on the ten thousand. History, <laughs> history seems to require more dramatic moments. <laughs> <laughs> What about it's a cold, calculated, legal approach? Well, that's very revealing. So, I mean, he said the law was clear, but, you know, we have to remind people racism actually used law to discriminate. So he had to receive a lot of backlash from his participation, his point of view, his rulings. To what extent? Oh, to an enormous extent. Uh, I mean, he, he and George Wallace had been friends in law school. They were not friends at that. George Wallace famously went around the state calling him, uh, and sounds like something you might hear today. Um, let me get his, I'm sorry. Called him an integrating, carpet bagging, scattle wagon, bald faced liar. Um, and I mean, there. So those were words, those but were then words. backlash can also, words trigger other means of backlash. And Did he face that? Yeah, I mean, crosses were burned Threats. on his lawn twice. His mother lived in Montgomery. Um, his father had died at that point, but. Uh, uh, but his father's name was Frank Johnson, too, and, and uh, his mother's home was bombed. She was not injured, but it was a blast that ripped through the entire down, downstairs. Um, so there was violence. There, was, uh, there were threats of violence. He used to keep a scrapbook of hate mail that he thought was particularly interesting that he had received. Um, you know, threats on the phone. There was... He held on to it as record that it was happening or identifying the sources of this, or was it just for his own personal history keeping? Well, and it was probably somebody in his chambers who decided we ought to keep some, some of record. this. Um, but it was, he, he, he though stressed that, uh, you know, he wasn't from Montgomery, unlike um, Judge Reeves, who he mentioned, uh, who, was, who was one of the other unlikely heroes. And Judge Reeves was, was from Montgomery. Judge Reeves, Judge Johnson felt, always took more of the brunt of some of these decisions because he was used to being in that society in Montgomery, and it totally ostracized him. The Judge Johnson used to say, it's hard to ostracize somebody who likes to fish. I mean, he, he'd just soon be out fishing than, than, you know, at a country club, so. So Peter, in 1979, Judge Johnson gave a commencement address at Boston University School of Law. In part of the speech, he said, the law should be realistic enough to treat certain issues as uh, special. A judiciary that cannot declare that is of little value. So he clearly made a huge lasting you know, impact. Is it to your surprise that more people don't know about him um, and know about his path? Um, it, it is surprising that people- and That he judge, isn't more front and center. And Judge Thompson, we're talking about that. We have trouble thinking of him as a hidden legal figure, but um, 
uh, and, and I think it's, there's a lot of value in making sure people remember them. And I, I think as a segue to Judge Thompson coming Perfect. up here, we're going to so show So Judge Myron Thompson, yes, yeah, succeeded. We, uh, it, Judge Frank Johnson. We, and we have a video we were going to go ahead and... Yes, I love if it. that's okay. Let's watch. Thanks. <laughs> History has a way of challenging us, judging us, compelling us. In the autumn of 1955, a newly appointed Alabama federal judge encountered a hard-working seamstress and the minister of a small congregation on a path destined to change the arc of history. Judge Frank M. Johnson's historic civil rights decisions not only led to ostracism, cross burnings, and death threats, but helped to change the face of the segregationist South and steadfastly forge a new way forward. In his courtroom, he applied constitutional principles that led to equal justice, civil rights, and human decency. During this turbulent era, the bravery of Rosa Parks, the teachings of Dr. Martin Luther King, and the decisions of Judge Frank M. Johnson challenged Americans to decide what kind of people they wanted to be. As we grapple with other critical issues, we learn from these lessons of history that gave true meaning to the word justice. Today, surveying the national landscape, the need for a non-political presentation of the constitutional principles that guide our nation's struggle to create a more perfect union is more necessary than ever. The Judge Frank M. Johnson Jr. Institute will stand as a beacon for equal justice under the law, mutual respect, and human dignity. Designed to build bridges from the past for a more enlightened future. A place for learning and illumination placed in the fulcrum of the original civil rights movement in Montgomery, Alabama. A place to enhance understanding of our Constitution and the rights and liberties it guarantees in our quest for liberty and justice for all. The Judge Frank M. Johnson, Jr. Institute. Very nice. And Judge Myron Thompson succeeded a Judge Frank M. Johnson. And I mean, this legacy, uh, Judge, in what way did it either position you or set you up to craft your own legacy. Oh my goodness. Uh, let me put it this way. I uh, succeeded Frank Johnson. I did not replace him. Uh, no one sure. replaced him. Your Do mic. I have my mic? Is my arm? That shows you just how much I did not replace him. <laughs> you got it? Let's see here. Should turn green. Still right there you now. Go. It's green. Can, can you hear me now? There's the light. Okay. Well, I was supposed yeah. to. Yeah, you can still. Uh, I really wanted to uh, cover two. Well, I guess I'll just use this. Two broad points, uh, Frederica. The first, your first question about, you know, why do people not know about Judge Johnson? And I think mm -hmm. you posed that question to Peter. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how many of you have seen a uh, video that's showing, uh, going around a university, I think it's the University of Texas, asking students certain civic questions, such as, you know, what are the three branches of government? 
uh, uh, name a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. Just these basic questions about our country. And virtually none of them can answer it. Literally none. And yet, of course, they can tell you, uh, as far as we're talking about people in entertainment, in Hollywood, even though this is the Hollywood of uh, <laughs> Georgia, that uh, they can tell you who's married to whom, and uh, you know how long X has been living with Y, and you know, you know for people in entertainment, but they can't tell you very much, if anything, about our government. Uh, this was sort of brought home to me uh, in a case that I was trying uh, back in the late '80s. Uh, this was before Obama was president. And it was a race discrimination case. And the question was posed by the lawyer to a witness who had been accused of discrimination. Can you name one black person who impresses you? And the witness said, Aunt Jemima. This guy was an engineer. He had gone to college. I think that he probably if he had had time to think about it, would have said Dr. King or Rosa Parks. But I think the point is that his initial quick reaction was Aunt Jemima, who, by the way, doesn't exist, really, <laughs> let alone would be someone you would be impressed with. And so you asked this question about Judge Johnson. Um, I think it's part of the fact that, uh, that we forget our history. And I think to, to answer that question, you almost have to start with the question of why do we study history? And we study history, as we've all learned when we were in elementary school or high school, not only just not to repeat it, but also to learn from it. Because democracy is an incredibly fragile institution. And uh, it depends upon firm, and understanding support from the populace. And that means understanding history. And so therefore, organizations like the Frank M. Johnston Institute, the uh, Arc of Justice, by the way, uh, serve that purpose, and a critical purpose in particular in uh, today when uh, so many people just really don't know anything about our government. And to understand its past is to understand the government. And to understand its past is to make sure that we're faithful to the principles that underlie our current government. But I think that there's an even more direct question is why study Frank Johnson? You've heard about this just, uh, just incredible man. Why him in particular? Um, uh, you, you, I don't know if uh, Peter didn't mention it, but uh, you know Frank Johnson was on the cover of Time magazine at one point. And yet, uh, when I was in Washington, D.C. two years ago, visiting with uh, Justice Kennedy, who was then on the Supreme Court, he had not retired, he said he asked all of his law clerks, had any one of them heard of Frank Johnson? Now, these are law clerks who come, arguably, from the most prestigious schools in the country, who studied the law, you know, with some seriousness, not one had heard of Frank Johnson. I'm willing to bet not one had heard of Albert Tuttle. If you go to many law schools today, most students will not have heard of people like Frank Johnson 
in Judge Tuttle. So the question is, you know, why, why, why study about them? And to really understand why we should study about them, you have to go back a little bit. And, and it's, I, I really think it's important to remember um, the circumstances under which Frank Johnson existed and ruled. We're talking about the Jim Crow laws, or the Jim Crow, I would call it, society. There were, of course, the Jim Crow laws where you were born, where you went to school, what hospital you went to, uh, where you ate, where you went to the restroom, what water fountain you drank out of, uh, where you died, where you were buried, were all determined by a law that said that blacks were treated separately. But that was not all that Jim Crow said. There was also the Jim Crow culture. It was unwritten, but just as important. How we address someone in public was based on who you were, what race you were. Whether you stepped aside, whether you demurred. If you were black, you did both. That culture was just important, as important as the law. And then there's something we really fail to forget, but fortunately in this day and time have been reminded of. Jim Crow violence and torture what I would call our American form of terrorism. Of course, because if you were black, you were less human, you were subject to this at will. But it was also the means by which the Jim Crow laws and the Jim Crow culture were kept in place. If you even challenge these laws, if you even challenge this culture, you face the violence. In other words, the Jim Crow violence kept you from even challenging that structure. And you'll get that if you come to Montgomery and you visit the lynching memorial. That's what's so critical. It was the thing that kept it all together, this violence. And it was condoned in the South. Now, when I think about this, you know, something comes to mind as every time I think about Jim Crow and the Jim Crow culture. It reminds me of a controversial statement by made by Hannah Arendt in her coverage of the Eichmann trial in her participation, or his participation in the Holocaust. And she called it the banality of evil. The statement was controversial because it had two meanings or could have two messages. In one sense, it connotes that evil is commonplace. It is everywhere. In a more controversial sense, it connotes that evil is so commonplace that no one bears responsibility. In that case, we we're talking about Eichmann. The Eichmann defense of, I was obeying orders, I was a bureaucrat, and above all, I was just a bystander. I merely lived in and grew up in this society. Eichmann was not a soldier, he was just there. But he was a part of the bureaucracy. For Frank Johnson, the concept of the bystander, the Eichmann defense, was not there. Whether it was gassing the Jews in Germany or lynching black people in Montgomery, Alabama, or gay bashing in Laramie, Wyoming, hatred of people 
because of what they are, not who they are, whether it be a Jew or black or a homosexual, and not based on their character, was simply unacceptable to him. And this banality of evil was pervasive here in the South. From hospitals to schools, everywhere it existed. The thing about Frank Johnson, though, is you say, well, he was a federal judge. He can make these changes. But what was so remarkable is that he grew up in that very culture that he sought to change. In other words, here was not someone rendering decrees from Washington, D.C. or rendering decrees from Massachusetts. Here was someone who was existing in the very culture he sought to, exchange, uh, to change. And in fact, what's so remarkable about him is that he's seeking a culture that he himself had grown up in. He stands as a symbol that Frank Johnson does to me that in this culture of what I would call this banality of evil, and I can't characterize Jim Crowism as anything other than pure, unadulterated evil, that the goodness in the hands of one person, just one good person, despite this banality, can change things. I still raise the question of, you know, why, why did he do it? What's so special about him? Some people say, well, you know, he grew up in Winston County. Winston County was in Alabama. It was segregated. Probably a little bit more tolerant, but still segregated. Mm -hmm. So why? And I puzzle with that question. What makes some people stand up against the tide, even the tide of your own community, even when your own relatives won't stand with you. I had that happen in a case or two. I, I had the case involving the Ten Commandments in Alabama and the Chief Justice. And my aunts, whom I met at a party later, says, I like you, Myron, but you've gone too far. <laughs> but here was Judge Johnson, who literally was standing up in many cases against his own relatives. And still there's a question is, why? I think one reason, and it's an easy reason, but I think it's a clear reason. And would you put up a picture of Ruth Johnson? Yeah. One of the reasons is right there, Ruth. I knew Ruth. And she was a real Ruth, let me assure you. She was as steely and strong as he was. I tell people today that in this day and time, she would have been a Judge Johnson too. And people often ask, you know, why did he have a backbone? Why was he so strong in his backbone? I say, Judge Johnson did not have a backbone. He had two backbones. <laughs> he had Ruth and himself. <laughs> so that's one of the reasons. And to have known her, which was my true pleasure, I, I, I uh, uh, was, it was it's, it's just something that I treasure every day. Uh, many courts take what they call oral histories of people who are important to the court. When I was chief judge of the Middle District of Alabama, I took an oral history of Ruth, his wife. I recently went to a conference in 
about famous judges in the civil rights movement. No other judge's wife's oral history had been taken. Because I don't think anyone realized just how important those women were to the judges. And to know Ruth was to know that she and Frank were one. And I really think that if you really want an explanation as to why he was so strong, I think it's because she stood there with him shoulder to shoulder. And if you talk to her, you would know that sometimes he may have been mouthing her. That's what kind of woman Ruth was. And so that's why I took a long oral history, which we have preserved. The other person I think who was important in Frank Johnson's history, I hope I'm not going too long, is Judge Richard T. Reeves. Peter mentioned Judge Reeves. Judge Reeves was born in Alabama, right? Unlike Frank Johnson. I mean, Judge Reeves was born in Montgomery, unlike Frank Johnson. And so he lived in that community. He had grown up in that community. But he cast the second vote in many, and most importantly, in the uh, case involving transportation. And Judge Johnson is right. He got the brunt. People would not sit next, sit next to him in churches. Uh, his own family was ostracized. He was ostracized. Judge Reeves lost his son uh, in an accident, a very young son. And people threw trash on his son's grave. Oh. I want to tell you a story about Judge Reeves, and this is a personal story about me as well. When I was appointed in 1980, I knew about Judge Reeves, and I knew about him, and I knew that he had not received the respect that I thought that he deserved uh, in this history about what I consider unsung heroes, which you've talked about, Derek. Judge Reeves, when I got started serving, had become senile. And I uh, used to come to the courthouse every Thursday, and he would have lunch with the chief judge of the circuit who was in Montgomery called John Godbull. John Godbull would be out of town often, so he called me up, I being a young judge, would never say no to the chief judge of our circuit, said, yes, I will join the, the two of you for lunch, and the three of us would go out to lunch. They eventually reached a point where Judge Godbull had to leave town and Judge Reeves and I went to lunch alone. I took Judge Reeves to lunch for two years. He never said one word to me. He was senile. He would come to the office. I would go up to his chambers. We would walk to a little cafe called the Francis Cafeteria. He would order the same thing. I was so afraid he was going to fall because he was so unsteady. Mm. We would sit down, say nothing, I'd carry him back, and then I'd leave him. And then his wife would come pick him up. <coughs> but that man was so important in my life that I thought that of all my duties as a judge, that is one of the most important ones that I performed. Mm. And, that, and I think that, when you, Peter, you talked about the uh, case where Judge Reeves and Judge Johnson decided the public transportation case. I think that that was a learning lesson for Judge Johnson. You know, I'm sort of, this is my own take on this. The third judge on that court was Judge Lynn. Judge Lynn voted against uh, allowing the desegregation of, of public transportation. And I think it's important to understand why Judge Lynn voted the way he did. He thought that Brown versus Board of Education 
controlled public education. But Plessy versus Ferguson controlled transportation. And the Supreme Court had never overruled Plessy versus Ferguson. And therefore, he thought that until the Supreme Court overruled Plessy versus Ferguson, which covered railroads and so forth, he was bound by that. When Judge Reeves said, Frank, I agree with you, that was a dramatic turn. It was dramatic in, in, for two ends. Frank, was, Frank Johnson was this young man. In some ways, he was a whippersnapper. <laughs> Judge Reeves was old Montgomery, a lot older, a lot more established. And yet he stuck his neck out. And Judge Johnson, you know, he says it was easy to make that decision. I'm not so sure that everyone in this room would have made that decision back then against her own culture, against her own relatives, and having Plessy versus Ferguson on point. That was a very, very brave decision by Judge Johnson. And it was an incredibly brave decision by Judge Reeves. And that's why I took him to lunch every day. <laughs> I also want to talk about Frank Johnson when we, you know, you ask these questions about, uh, you know, how did he decide cases? I sat on one case with him, a three-judge case, a voting rights case, my first case that I sat on a three-judge court, and uh, I had written a fairly long memo, my law clerks actually had, and uh, started to read it when we met in the back room. Judge Johnson's right; I was a junior judge, so I got to talk first. And I started to uh, talk about why we should rule for the plaintiffs in this voting rights case. He stopped me in the middle and he said, Myron, I like your memo, I'll read it later. But what do you think we should do? And then I said, I think we should rule for the plaintiffs because I think the evidence is obvious, blank, blank, blank. He says, I agree, he turns to the other judge. What do you think? I agree. Myron, go write something, but keep it short. <laughs> Uh, anyway, Peter, he did rule on the law, but his sense of fairness yeah. was incredible. And I think he did have a prescience about where the law was going. And those decisions were not easy decisions. You know, I, I also, uh, when I think about Judge Johnson, I, I got one minute left. I think about also talking about what makes a great judge. I had a case before him as a trial lawyer, so I want to talk about even from that perspective. And this was a little case. This is not a case about public transportation. This is not a case that's going to the Supreme Court. It's probably not even going to the Court of Appeals. It's not that winnable. But what happened was, Judge Johnson was in Dothan, Alabama, where I had this, uh, my law practice. I had just set up. I'd just gotten out of law school. I, was, I wanted to be sort of like... Uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart out of Anatomy of a Murder. I had my, my, I had my uh, office in the front and I lived in the back because I was poor. And all I wanted to do was just open my door and tell people to come in. So Judge Johnson's secretary calls me on the phone and says, you've been appointed to a criminal case. And I said, okay, because I knew I couldn't tell him no. And he, I said, when is it going to trial? And they said, tomorrow. <laughs> This is before you know you, had, you respected those things like preparation. But still don't tell Judge Johnson no. So I call, go to my client, and I say to my client, I say, uh, um, give me the facts. And he says, well, you know, they stopped us, and, and they think that I had these drugs, and uh, I'm really not guilty. 
And I have a witness who can prove it. And not only can this witness prove it, this witness, and by the way, this took, took place on an army installation. This witness is an army, uh, is a military police officer. So he's credible. He can prove that I'm innocent. And I said, what's the witness's name? He says, the witness's name is John. I said, John? You know, I'd only been practicing law maybe a year or two, but I knew that when you go to someone and they say only one person can tell you, can prove you're innocent, you only have one name, a first name, no last name, no address, you know that guy's guilty. I mean, even, even I had that much sense as a young lawyer. But I did something that I don't know if I'd have the courage to do today if I were a young lawyer. I filed a motion with Judge Johnson to subpoena John. And I went over there and I thought I'd be laughed out of court. This little old case, he granted it. <laughs> he had the FBI look for John. Wow. The entire FBI. That midnight, I got a call from an FBI agent saying, we found John. <sighs> they put John on the phone. He proved my client was innocent. I met him at the airport. They flew him into Dothan. They dropped the charges. Mm. There was no little case in Judge Johnson's court. No such thing as a little case. All cases were important. You know, I, I think that was really the driving force behind it when people wonder why, you know, what, what makes a great judge. Is I think there are no such things as little cases in his court. I think they were all based on his belief in the humanity of all people, whether you were black, whether you were a woman, whether you were gay. I just think he believed in that individual humanity. And it permeated everything he did. And in that sense, his decisions were easy. But finding out how to get to the end of that result was incredibly difficult. And as a judge who's been practicing for many, many years, I can attest to that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Judge Thompson. So I know there are a lot of questions, a lot of curiosities in the room. You'll see the microphones are placed. So start thinking about your questions. I'm going to ask one question to Judge Thompson. Uh, but you can make your way up to a microphone, and well, we'd love to entertain your questions. So um, you just mentioned before you know, your storytelling that you did not replace uh, the judge. But as you took to the helm, as you took that seat, how much was he in your ear? How much was he in your heart? Well, obviously, uh, very much in my heart. And because he was on the Court of Appeals, very much in my ear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and I was your first law clerk. Actually, Peter was my so. first law clerk. I inherited Peter from oh, Judge Johnson. So. Uh, no, I, I think his presence is still felt on that court. Those overarching principles that I've talked about, about respect for individuality, respect for human beings. Uh, I think that's, in fact, you know, people ask me, you know, why is it even important to know about Frank Johnson? Why is it important to know about the lawyer you're going to talk about in a few minutes? I want to tell one other little short story. I was, uh, and, and the whole thing about the bystander defense, which I say is no defense at all. I was in Canada not too long ago speaking to a group of lawyers. And on my way to the speech, I took a taxi. And the taxi driver and I got into a conversation. And it ended up that the taxi driver was from Rwanda. And uh, of course, you know, I went, oh, you're from Rwanda? 
And of course, I want to ask about Rwanda. And yes, he was there during the Rwanda genocide. And then he tells a story about how when the soldiers came in and the uh, town, you could hear them outside and there the rumblings and the violence getting nearer and nearer and how he and his family went to a church and they all would lie down on the floor in the church and the soldiers got nearer and nearer. And finally, he says they came into the church and then he says he passed out, but he doesn't know why he passed out. Mm. He was a teenager. He said he would have been about 15 or 16 at the time. He woke up to find out that his mother, his father had all been killed. In fact, they'd been chopped up literally around him. That was how horrendous. He made his way out of the church and he started running. And he ran and he ran to a nearby African country and he finally got to South America. I mean, it's South Africa. And the Canadian embassy there was looking for these survivors. And he, was, he signed up and they took him in and they brought him to Canada. And you know, I, and I was thinking to myself, you know, even on the world stage, you know, there are no bystanders. These horrific things, whether it's happening in Rwanda or whether it's happening in, in uh, the South back uh, or whether it's happening in any other part of this country, there are people willing to stand up and help. In this case, it was Canada. And these atrocities continue today. And I think the message of Frank Johnson and why we study him is he symbolizes that the bystander rule or the bystander defense is no defense at all. Either you participate or you are responsible for the evil. Any questions from the audience? Okay, think about your questions. Start making your way to the microphone. This is your opportunity. So then Peter, uh, when we talk about this culture of hate that you underscored, you know, at the time of, of Judge um, Johnson serving, what is it about him where he was able to separate himself from this culture of hate and be led by what he thought the right thing to do was? What was it about him that allowed him to do that? That's a very hard question. Because um... you talk about this, you know, banality of, of evil but it was a culture when everybody else, when the majority is saying, this is the way to think and feel and do, majority. overwhelming. And he is, you know, uh, the salmon going upstream. He's, it, well, what allows you to do that? What I, is it about him? I think part of it was that he was, he was somebody, and I don't know if it was part of his upbringing or what, but he, he didn't do things casually or by accident. He, when he said something, he, you know, wasn't flippant. He knew what he was going to say. He was very deliberate about everything he did. So I think, I, I think that's just a way of saying he thought before he did things. And so he thought before he would just do, he would go with the flow of, of hatred or whatever it was at the moment. He would think for himself and reach his own conclusion. Still silence from you guys? You're kidding me. Are you really that shy? I thought this was like, you know, a boisterous group. Oh, I had the microphone right there. <laughs> so it seems like the political discourse on judicial selections has changed dramatically over the period of time that when, when, when Judge Johnson was appointed a Republican by a Democrat um, to today. And I, and I guess it seems to me if, the, if you guys have any uh, ideas 
or concepts that could help so that we have judicial appointment and the process becomes maybe back to that, what would make a good judge is a less politically sort of um, charged appointment in the process. To, so that we can get back to a Judge Johnson sort of a, appointment. Um, so the, is the question that will it ever be removed or? I no, think what, I, I think in general the process, I mean, uh, today I think if you, if a Republican appointed a Democrat or a Democrat appointed a Republican, it would be much more unusual. Um, yes. and, and I don't know if there's anything or any suggestions you have, because I think what we all believe here is in the system of justice that should be, you know, obviously colorblind and, and, and maybe, you know, it's that third branch of government that's the check and balance of, of the other two. And it's important that we have these, the independence of the judiciary. Um, and, and how do we get maybe back there? I, I think the thing that's remarkable about Judge Johnson is, of course, he was appointed by Eisenhower, a Republican. Oh, I'm sorry. Even though he was very uh, when he was he was appointed to the Eleventh Circuit by Carter, a Democrat, which shows that when you have his character, party doesn't always or shouldn't matter. Unfortunately, I think it, it may matter to some people. There were some people who opposed him when he was appointed to the Eleventh Circuit by Carter. But I think the important thing is to start appointing judges based on merit and assume that they will follow the law. Now, what it means to follow the law can have different, can be interpreted in different ways. And perhaps because it can be interpreted in different ways, we shouldn't assume that someone should, should sort of betray their allegiance before they assume the office. But what you do want to feel comfortable with is that they will comply with the law. And I don't think anyone can say that Judge Johnson never followed the law. They might have disagreed with his interpretation of the law, but they couldn't say that. Um, and I think it's a return to the notion of appointing judges who are strong, who have merit, and uh, whether, you, you know, when I, when I was first appointed to the bench, it, I would cringe when I was on a three-judge court and they would say two whites and one black. Or now you hear, you know, a blank blank ruled and he was appointed by Carter, or blank blank <coughs> ruled and he was appointed by Clinton, or blank blank ruled and she was appointed by uh, uh, Bush. It, everything is political now. And uh, uh, there was a time when that wasn't true. And then I, I don't have a solution to how to undo that, but I think that is a flaw in our system. Thank you. And I mean, one, one story that might relate to that at least is that, um, when Judge Johnson was on the bench as a district court judge and the freedom rides were happening and, you know, the riders were being beaten and, and buses set on fire. Um, Jack Bass in one of his books talks about how um, there was a meeting at the White House with, with President Kennedy. So Robert, who wanted to do something about this, um, Robert Kennedy, who was then the Attorney General, uh, and Burke Marshall came to the White House to talk about what we're gonna do. And they wanted to go into court and get protection for the riders, and they were trying to figure out which court to go into. And uh, I, I don't know if it was, uh, President Kennedy was, was wondering why do we wanna go before a Republican judge in Alabama, but but uh, 
when they made the decision as to which judge to go to, uh, Burke Marshall said, the reason we want to go to Judge Johnson is not because they thought, you know, he's, he was ideologically in their camp somehow. Uh, Burke Marshall said, he's clear, he's concise, and he's direct. And that's what we need. We need a judge who will do those things now. So, And also, uh, I think it's important to remember that Judge Johnson had his own views about Dr. King. He respected Dr. King greatly, but he was not necessarily a fan of all the demonstrations. Uh, he had some problems in particular with the violence, not caused by Dr. King, but in response to what Dr. King was doing. In fact, I think in the Montgomery to Selma March, he enjoined both sides from March right. initially. But the point here is that he wasn't in anyone's camp. There was no such thing as a camp. What he did was he had the hearing, he enjoined both sides, and then he decided, and I think is one of his best opinions, he said the enormity of the wrong here is so big and the right that's being violated is so great that this march has to take place. In other words, there are exceptions to even closing a public highway. Mm. You have to allow it. It's just such a big deal. And uh, so he wasn't in any camp because he was, he had enjoyed that march to begin with. We have time for one more question. Yes. And could you go to the microphone just to make sure everybody can hear you? Oh, okay. Then to your right. <laughs> Thank you. Mr. Canfield, I think you said earlier that Judge Johnson was careful not to issue an opinion that he feared couldn't be enforced. I wonder if you could explain that. I, I, I was privileged one time to hear uh, deceased Justice Powell talk about U.S. versus Nixon. And uh, he, he described in that speech how much they worried that whether the president would comply with the court order to, issue, to uh, enforce the subpoena. And he said, you know, what could we do? We could send up the U.S. Marshal <laughs> to the White House and knock on the door and ask for the tapes. Uh, but they didn't fear issuing that opinion, although they worried about that outcome. I just wonder if you could expound on your comment. Sure. Um, so, for example, in the Selma to Montgomery March case, before he issued his order, he made sure that the that, that President Johnson was prepared to nationalize the Alabama National Guard to help enforce it. Um, he didn't just sort of hope that would happen. He, made, he got a commitment that that would happen before he did it. Um, he had, uh, I remember a story about that, that he'd even made, he was, he just prepared and thought ahead about what would happen. He'd let the he let the Fifth Circuit know when the order was going to come out. And so when he brought the lawyers in to tell them, I'm about to issue this order, he said, I've called the Fifth Circuit. If you file an appeal, Governor Wallace, if you're going to file an appeal, they're set to hear you at 5 p.m. This afternoon, I've checked at the airport. There's a flight that'll get you to New Orleans in time. 
to the point that one of the judge, one of the lawyers said, "Well, judge, did you make reservations for us?" Uh, but he just thought through all those consequences before he did something. He didn't shoot from the hip on things like that. It was well and thoughtfully planned. All right, thank you, Peter Canfield, uh, Judge Myron Thompson, for helping to pay homage to an extraordinary uh, federal judge, Frank M. Johnson, and thank you for your questions as well. Uh, Derek Alexander Pope is back. Thank you. For his reflective insight, his thought-provoking commentary, and her brilliance, join me again in thanking Peter Canfield, Judge Myron Thompson, and Frederica Whitfield. Thank you. As Frederica mentioned, there are some things happening in the nation right now. She has to get back to the studios to bring us that real definition of breaking news. And so we thank you again for being with us this morning, Frederica. We're going to take a 10 minute break because we'll come back and we'll have our second segment about attorney Donald Lee Hollowell. 10 minutes and we'll see you right back here. Welcome back, everyone. The second portion of our conversation spotlights the work of Atlanta civil rights lawyer, Donald Lee Hollowell. This portion of our conversation is gonna be moderated by our very own State Bar of Georgia president-elect, Don Jones, and our presenter is the biographer of Mr. Hollowell, Professor Maurice Daniels. Don. Good morning. How did you guys enjoy the first panel? It was informative, wasn't it? It's wonderful and in my opinion, a bit tragic that we don't know about these kind of unsung heroes, you know, outside of their usual territories. And I gotta say, just on behalf of the State Bar of Georgia, um, and as a practicing attorney in Atlanta, I'm really proud that the State Bar has decided to present uh, these panels today. And um, Although I wasn't excited about participating because I don't like to public speak, I am happy to be here. So before uh, Professor Daniels, um, who has been gracious enough to be here today, uh, gives us a presentation and we see a video about Mr. Donnelly Hollowell, I'm just going to give you a, a little setup, a segue briefly, because we're going to go into detail about his background, about his experiences, and more specifically about his legal experiences. Um, how many folks in, uh, are from Atlanta in this room? Yeah. How many folks in Atlanta have never heard of Donald Lee Hollowell? Right. How many folks outside of uh, Georgia have not heard of Donald Lee Hollowell? This is wonderful. This is wonderful. He's a, he's a well-kept hidden legal figure in Georgia, and, and we're going to um, give you some great information on him today. So that, that's great. I'm really glad you're here. We're gonna turn a spotlight to Donnelly Hollowell, also known as Mr. Civil Rights. He's known, he was known and is known as a transformational leader, Georgia's chief civil rights attorney, a humanitarian and a legal scholar. When we talk about these icons, it's very easy to recognize them as heroes, as uh, folks who are very famous and, and almost folkloric. I just made up that word just now, just now. 
what I like about this panel is we're going to have the opportunity to humanize Donald Lee Hollowell so that you really get a better idea of who he is. And um, Professor Daniels is certainly the best person to help us do that. And I just want to briefly plug, and uh, there's going to be more information at the end of this panel, but Professor Daniels' biography on Donald Lee Hollowell and, and touching on other aspects of uh, the civil rights uh, movement is titled Saving the Soul of Georgia. Donald, Donald L. Hollowell and the Struggle for Civil Rights, um, and opportunities to have a free book provided to you by the State Bar of Georgia, signed by this gentleman here, will be available after this panel. So please take advantage of that. I already got my sign early this morning. So before we get into uh, Professor Daniel's presentation, we're gonna watch a brief video, I believe by Vernon Jordan, uh, on Donald Lee Hollowell. Can we dim the lights? There's a request to turn the lights down a little bit so you can see the screen, so folks can see the screen a little easier. I think our president's taking care of that. Thank you. Yes, how's that? In the, in the very front? He's getting to it. Oh. The system of segregation was a bitter pill. We were informed that Reverend King had been taken down to Reedsville at 4.05 this morning. We prepared a writ of habeas corpus, which we uh, plan to submit this morning at 8 o'clock. Yeah. However, when we called at 8 for the purpose of ascertaining the whereabouts of the sheriff for making service, uh, we were informed that Reverend King had been taken down to Reedsville at 4.05 this morning. After representing King before the Georgia Court of Appeals, Hollowell chartered a plane to Reedsville to pick up his client, eight days after police jailed him in Atlanta. Dr. King would not have been released unless there was some legal action taken to release him. And the legal action that was taken to release him was a habeas corpus petition that Horace Ward and Dom Hollowell prepared and fought. It was Horace Ward uh, and Dom Hollowell who were driving up and down the roadway uh, of Georgia, going back and forth from Atlanta to Reedsville. In protest of the Jim Crow practices among Atlanta's white businesses, Atlanta student movement leaders staged mass sit-ins at local department stores. On October 19, 1960, veteran civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King joined the demonstration, and he was among the over 50 demonstrators arrested, including SNCC leaders and five student body presidents from the Atlanta University complex. One of them was Julian Bond. I had been chosen out of the group arrested at Atlanta City Hall to be tried for my group. I'm standing between these two men whom I meet for the first time in my life, Donald Hollowell on my right, A.T. Walden on my left, and I really don't understand what's happening. It's the first time I've ever been in court. 
And there's some back and forth between these two men and the judge. And the judge says to me, how do you plead? Well, I, I was stunned. How do I plead? I didn't know what to do. I turned to look at Colonel Walden, who was the older of these two men. And he was engaged in a conversation with the bailiff. So I couldn't get an answer there. I turned to Don Hollowell. And he said in this stage whisper, I'm sure it could be heard throughout the whole classroom. He said, not guilty, you fool. <laughs> and I said, not guilty. It's the first uh, young law school graduate that uh, Hollowell brought to his office. Horace Ward came in September. And we had a very good time. I carried Hollowell's briefcase. I drove his car. I did his research. Uh, I, I studied under him. I was his law clerk. I was his intern. I was his mentee. And we had lots of cases, too numerous to mention, having to do with violations of civil rights. The most significant by far was the University of Georgia case. I, I would just like to think that the people at the university and around the university uh, are sufficiently fair-minded to want to see any Georgia citizen get the best education possible at the facilities which are provided by the state. Once we got into university, for example, the, the, we were suspended the second day uh, we were on the campus because of the riot outside of my dormitory. And uh, we, we came to Atlanta in the middle of the night and the next day, the lawyers, Hollowell and Motley, went to court to get us readmitted. The Albany movement mobilized mass demonstrations, bus boycotts, sit-ins, and jail-ins. On December 16, 1961, after more than 500 demonstrators had been arrested, SCLC leaders Martin Luther King and Ralph David Abernathy joined the Albany movement with a prayer vigil at City Hall. Responding to the arrest, Hollowell teamed up with his longtime friend, C.B. King, Albany's noted civil rights attorney. Hollowell and C.B. King uh, raised the legal questions and forced the, the uh, government, both at the local and national level, local, state and national levels, to face uh, the issues of segregation and discrimination and, and brutality on the part of law enforcement officials. So they did it brilliantly and Albany was never the same. These are uh, uh, unsung, uh, not much appreciated heroes. And most people who benefited from their commitment and from their talents don't know their name, but know what they do, but they are the beneficiaries of, of these lawyers, black lawyers who went home from law school uh, to make their talents as lawyers available to the ultimate aspirations of black people. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, happiness on the basis of equal opportunity. That's the American way. I'm going to invite Professor Daniels to uh, provide remarks to us. Thank you.
Good morning. Morning. To the Southern Conference of Law Presidents, to the Arc of Justice Institute and the State Bar of Georgia. Thank you very kindly for this invitation. It is indeed an honor to speak to you briefly on the legacy and the illustrious legal career of Donald Lee Hollowell. Hollowell was a graduate of Loyola Law School in Chicago and moved to Atlanta in 1952. Uh, married and devoted to the love of his life, Louise Thornton Hollowell, for 62 years. Hollowell, uh, with strong support from Louise, dedicated all of his adult life to the cause of social justice. He was a deeply religious man and often said he had a sacred call to become a civil rights lawyer, to help democracy become more of a reality for all Americans. With his booming voice and imposing stature, his sharp intellect and precise diction, he was the personification of grace and humility and dignity with a strong passion for the cause of social justice. Incensed by the blatant racial discrimination and humiliating treatment he encountered while serving in the United States Army during World War II, Hollowell decided to become a civil rights lawyer. In an interview with him, he said that the irony of defending freedom abroad and returning home to Jim Crow laws, steal his resolve to want to fight for the cause of social justice. So he decided to become a civil rights attorney. Shortly after moving to Atlanta in 1952, Mr. Hollowell became very active in the Atlanta branch and the state conference of the NAACP. He served as chairman of the Redress Committee. In this role, he courageously ventured into remote areas of the state to represent black citizens whose rights were often trampled by public officials. On a number of occasions, his life was threatened. Despite the risks to his personal safety, he was undeterred and persevered as Georgia's undisputed chief civil rights lawyers for almost 20 years. The story of Donald Hollowell illuminates the amazingly comprehensive struggle that ended legal segregation in this state. He was the chief counsel in cases that ended segregation in Georgia's colleges and universities. 
He was chief counsel in cases that ended segregation in secondary schools, in public accommodations, and public transit. His story also illustrates how he won cases that ended segregation in Georgia in housing, in healthcare, on juries, and in voting booths. For today's presentation, I will briefly cover two of his criminal cases, two of his cases against state-sanctioned segregation, and briefly discuss how he was able to to secure the release of hundreds of civil rights activists from jails and prisons all over Georgia. Only one year after passing the bar, Mr. Hollowell won a major criminal case here in Atlanta that propelled him to prominence as one of the nation's leading civil rights lawyers. It was 1954, and it was a case of the state versus Willie Nash. Hollowell defended Nash in a capital case that included indictments for the rape of a white woman and the murder of her white lover. And there were no crimes in America for which a black man would have been more severely punished than for the rape of a white woman and the murder of a white man. Heretofore in Georgia, blacks had been electrocuted or lynched for far less serious accusations than rape or murder. Despite the racially charged courtroom environment, which included the prosecuting attorney using the N-word, Hollowell not only represented Nash, but prevailed in obtaining a not guilty verdict from an all-white jury. The fact that this was Hollowell's first criminal case and his first capital case, only two years out of law school, it magnified his victory. In an interview with civil rights attorney Howard Moore, he contends that the Nash case established Hollowell as one of the preeminent civil rights attorneys in America. This case was the beginning of Hollowell's rise to prominence as Georgia's chief civil rights lawyer. Hollowell also became known as Thurgood Marshall's man in Georgia. He served as chief counsel of most of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund cases in Georgia during the 1950s and 1960s. And although the Nash case propelled him to prominence as a civil rights lawyer, his most celebrated criminal case occurred in 1961, and it was a case of Cobb versus the state of Georgia. In this case, Hollowell represented a 15-year-old Preston Cobb and rescued him from death row in Reedsville Maximum Security Prison five days before the scheduled execution. Cobb lived with his mother on a farm in Monticello, Georgia, which was owned by a white, prominent white farmer. And Cobb was charged with his murder. Less than 90 days after the murder, on August 16, 1961, 
an all-white, all-male jury deliberated less than 40 minutes before sentencing Cobb to die in Georgia's electric chair. Equally alarming as the quick trial, the judge set the date for Cobb's execution to take place less than 40 days later. And even more troubling, Cobb's court-appointed white attorney appealed, uh, failed to appeal uh, the verdict. The case drew national and international attention. Eleanor Roosevelt became involved in the case and Dutch court officials representing the Netherlands traveled to Atlanta to advocate for Preston Cobb. Meanwhile, Vernon Jordan, Hollowell's law clerk, whose father was from Monticello, heard of Cobb's predicament and arranged for Cobb's mother to meet with Mr. Hollowell just a few days before the scheduled execution. Hollowell hurriedly mounted a defense for Cobb and won a stay of execution five days before his client was sentenced to die. It was a complex case that involved the systematic exclusion of blacks from the jur jury rows in Monticello, Georgia and Jasper County. Hollowell filed a flurry of motions with the local superior and state courts objecting to the systematic exclusion of blacks from the jury panels. Despite his repeated pleadings for a new trial, the lower courts and the Georgia Supreme Court denied all of his motions. At that point, as he had done repeatedly in his release, relentless determination to see that justice was served, he turned to the federal courts. And the United States Supreme Court ultimately ruled that the practice of excluding blacks from jury pools using segregated tax digests was unconstitutional. Importantly, Hollowell and his law partners, Howard Moore and Horace T. Ward, Horace T. Ward, who would later become a federal judge here in Atlanta, ultimately succeeded in not only preventing the unjust execution of this 15-year-old cop, but also in exposing the double standard of justice in Georgia's uh, criminal courts. In addition to Mr. Hollowell's successful defense of black men whose fate might have otherwise been an appointment with Georgia's electric chair, he also won scores of cases against state-sanctioned segregation. As I indicated, I will talk about two of his landmark victories against segregation in Georgia. The 1959 Hunt v. Arnold case against Georgia State College of Business, which is now Georgia State University here in downtown Atlanta. And the 1961 Holmes v. Danner case uh, against the University of Georgia in Athens. In the Hunt case, Hollowell and NAACP Legal Defense Fund lawyers won a groundbreaking decision against Georgia State University. The case was especially significant because in addition to enjoining Georgia State from practicing racially discriminatory policies, the federal judge 
also enjoined the Board of Regents of the University System of Georgia from denying admission to black students due to their race. The case marked a watershed, watershed moment in the fight against segregation in Georgia. In issuing his unprecedented ruling overturning segregation in Georgia's colleges and universities, federal judge Boyd Sloan, one of those unlikely heroes, accepted the argument of Hollowell and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund that the racially discriminatory policies and practices at Georgia State and the Board of Regents violated the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment. Hollowell's and the NAAC's victory in the Hunt case became the first federal court victory against segregated education in Georgia, and this occurred in 1959. Less than two years after this victory in the Hunt case, Hollowell served as chief counsel in the Holmes v. Danner case on behalf of Hamilton Earl Holmes and Charlene Hunter. Hollowell marshaled a expert legal team for this case that included legal defense firm attorney Constance Baker Motley, his law partner Horace T. Ward, and his law clerk Vernon Jordan. Mr. Hollowell meticulously crafted and orchestrated the case, and it was his law clerk, Vernon Jordan, who found a piece of evidence that provided prima facie evidence that Holmes and Hunter had been denied admission solely because of their race. Holmes v. Dana was a long legal process that ended 175 years of segregation at the University of Georgia. Federal Judge William Boodle ultimately ordered the admission of Holmes and Hunter, the first two black students to enroll at the University of Georgia in January of 1961. It's important to note that the state appealed Judge Boodle's decision, but federal judge Albert Tuttle upheld Boodle's decision. The state then appealed the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court and all nine justices swiftly affirm the decision of Judge Boodle. It should also be underscored that Hollowell's victory had far-reaching effects on the desegregation of public colleges and universities throughout Georgia and in other Deep South states. The University of Mississippi was desegregated in 1962 and the University of Alabama in 1963. Besides winning federal judicial decisions against state-sanctioned segregation and defending African-American men charged with capital crimes, Hollowell also represented thousands of civil rights activists and leaders arrested and jail for their civil rights protests. In 1960, he secured his most famous client, 
from a maximum security prison. As noted in the film, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was among more than 50 demonstrators who staged a sit-in at Atlanta's richest department store. They tried to sit down to eat in the Magnolia Room at Riches in its major store downtown Atlanta. And when Dr. King and the protesters insisted on being served in the Magnolia Room instead of moving to the Hunter Room in the basement of the store, which was reserved for Negroes, Dr. King and more than 50 other demonstrators were arrested and jailed. Dr. King was subsequently transferred to DeKalb County Jail for violating his probation. He had been found guilty and placed on probation in May of 1960 for failing to obtain a Georgia driver's license within 90 days of his move from Montgomery to Atlanta. Judge Oscar Mitchell of the DeKalb County Court swiftly revoked Dr. King's probation and sentenced him to four months hard labor in Reedsville Maximum Security Prison. After the proceedings, Hollowell hurriedly prepared a writ of habeas corpus. But when Hollowell, as was indicated in the brief clip, arrived at the jail the next morning, he learned that Dr. King, in the middle of the night, had been whisked off and transferred from the DeKalb County Jail to the Reedsville State Prison. And for those of you who are not from Georgia and may not be familiar with the terrain, that's a four-hour drive. Uh, and I think he was, they left about four o'clock in the morning, so probably arrived about maybe four, maybe about eight o'clock the following morning. Fearing for Dr. King's safety, Mr. Hollowell and his law partner, Horace T. Ward, literally crisscrossed the state between Atlanta and Reedsville, trying to secure the release of Dr. King from prison. After the filing of a series of court actions over a period of eight days, on October 28th, eight days after Dr. King had been originally jailed, Hollowell argued again before Judge Mitchell, and this time, Judge Mitchell ruled in favor of Dr. King's release. Eight days and eight long nights after his original arrest. Hollowell then chartered a plane to Reedsville, Georgia, to pick up his client. It should be underscored that besides representing eminent civil rights leaders, such as Dr. Martin Luther King and Dr. Ralph Abernathy and John Lewis and Julian Bond. Mr. Hollowell also represented thousands of civil rights activists across the state who were often jailed for their civil rights protests. He joined noted civil rights attorney C.B. King in Albany, Georgia, in securing the release of hundreds of protesters during the Albany civil rights movement. And he enjoyed, or he joined attorney A.T. Walden, I should say the distinguished attorney A.T. Walden here in Atlanta, in securing the release of hundreds of protesters during the Atlanta student 
sit-ins. The young protesters were enamored uh, with Mr. Hollowell and he embraced uh, their activism. And many of them, as Charlene Hunter Galt observed, regarded him as a surrogate father. The student protesters often chanted, King is our leader, Hollowell is our lawyer. We shall not be moved. In closing, let me say that despite Mr. Hollowell's enormous achievements and his many victories in state and federal courts, he did not win all of his cases. Despite most, his most reasoned arguments and his determination to see justice served, uh, some of his clients were executed in Georgia's electric chair. And on occasions, he acknowledged in an interview that sometimes Georgia's racially oppressive judicial system overwhelmed him. Nonetheless, it is fair to say that his courage, his brilliance, his dedication to the cause of social justice, and the scores of groundbreaking cases that he won, helped form the backbone of a movement that brought about social change in this city and this state and ultimately in American history. This American hero embodied the spirit of a freedom fighter, although somewhat of a hidden figure who worked behind the scenes. He was a highly influential civil rights lawyer with an enduring legacy. His pupil and protege, Mr. Vern Jordan, is right. He said, Mr. Hollowell is no less significant than other revered legal thinkers and freedom fighters of the 20th century. He went on to say, for me, Mr. Hollowell remains as significant as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, Thurgood Marshall, Fannie Lou Hamer, and many other well-known activists in the black freedom struggle. Hollowell's courage and his advocacy and his brilliant lawyering helped to make real the promise of democracy. All men, if I could say parenthetically, and women are created equal endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'd like to invite um, Peter Canfield from our earlier panel uh, up to the stage and uh, Judge Thompson had to leave us and in his stead, we have Thomas Raines, Executive Director of 
the Frank Johnson Junior Institute. Let you guys get seated. And no, oh, can you hear me? Well, I'm louder than you think. So this segment is actually, uh, we're going to continue the discussion uh, with some something of a Q&A. I have some prepared questions and have uh, doodled some things based on the earlier panel. I welcome throughout this Q&A any questions you have for any of the panelists. Most of my questions, uh, at, uh, at least for a portion, are going to be directed uh, to Professor Daniels. But please, the mics are available, and this is an opportune time for you to, to ask any uh, delving question you'd like to um, we're all here to get more informed and, and to be more educated. And, and I can't think of a better panel than this to help us do that with these hidden figures. I'm going to start off with just some of the basics as it relates to Mr. Hollowell's background. Can everybody still hear me? Okay, I feel like I'm, I'm fading a little bit. Yeah. Um, I understood that he wanted to be a dentist yeah. before he became a lawyer. Do you know why he wanted to be a dentist? Who wants to be a dentist? <laughs> um, good question. I, I can say that uh, he was a good student academically, and he excelled in biology, hmm. chemistry, and sciences. So um, I, I would take it that he was encouraged uh, to go in a field such as dentistry or, or medicine for that reason. I don't know why he especially chose dentistry, but I think he was Oh, on. your mic's not on. There you go. And I was supposed to remind him, so that was my fault. You got it. Testing. It has a red, yep, it's on. Okay, testing, okay, yeah, all right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Did everybody hear that response? Um, so can you talk a little bit about uh, Mr. Hollowell's military experience in the state he ser served in the Army? Yes, uh, Mr. Hollowell served in the Army for eight years. Wow. Um, he uh, was a Buffalo soldier uh, stationed at uh, Fort Leavenworth uh, in Kansas uh, for three years. And um, he uh, also uh, served here in Georgia at Fort Oglethorpe, uh, also served at Fort Benning, which is near Columbus, Georgia. He was stationed at uh, Fort Custer in Michigan, and he was also stationed at Fort Hood in Texas. And uh, he was in the Army during World War II and actually did a tour, tour, tour of duty uh, during uh, World War II. But as I mentioned, uh, he was incensed by uh, some very uh, cruel uh, racial discrimination uh, that he encountered uh, during his military service. And um, he provided some examples of that. Um, when he was stationed at uh, Fort Oglethorpe, he was the only black soldier uh, on the base. And he slept alone in an eight-bed tent because uh, white soldiers and uh, black soldiers were not allowed to sleep in the same quarters. He talked about going to the dining hall, or maybe he said the mess hall, as it was referred to. Uh, and he had a separate table, uh, a table reserved uh, for Negroes. Um, he talked about an experience at Fort Hood, and he was an officer, a second lieutenant by the time he was stationed at Fort Hood. And he went with other officers to a movie theater, which actually was uh, on the fort. And uh, of course, he sat where other officers uh, sat, and he was asked to 
uh, moved to the back of the theater uh, because of his color. So he had a number of experiences which um, uh, he was incensed by, and uh, that's one of the things that uh, helped him to decide to become a lawyer. And that's a great segue to my next question. What made him decide to become a lawyer? Was That was part of it. Um, what were the other reasons? Well, the other reason, he was inspired um, after, after leaving the military, after World War II, uh, he returned to his undergraduate college, which was uh, Lane College in uh, Jackson, Tennessee. That's where, he under, that's where he earned his undergraduate degree. And while he was uh, a student at Lane, Mr. Hollowell was an outstanding student academically. Uh, he was also a uh, varsity football player, also played basketball, so he was also outstanding in extracurricular activities. He was also an uh, eminent student leader. Uh, he was president of his freshman class, his sophomore class, his junior class, and wow. when he became a uh, senior, he was elected student body president. And as student body president, he was invited to a conference on the campus of Allen University, a historically black college in Columbia, South Carolina, to attend a conference, uh, the Southern Negro Youth Congress, uh, a forerunner of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, this was in the 1940s. And Mr. Hollowell, growing up in Kansas, um, had not uh, was not familiar with civil rights organizations. He was not familiar with civil rights leaders, uh, but he was just in awe at this conference. He had an opportunity to meet uh, Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois. Mm. Uh, he had an opportunity to meet uh, Paul Robeson. Uh, Paul Robeson, the uh, Rutgers uh, <coughs> Phi Beta Kappa, uh, the great baritone uh, uh, film actor, later film actor and uh, Broadway uh, star. Uh, but Paul Robeson also was an international uh, activist and humanitarian, and also a lawyer. Uh, uh, Paul Robeson earned a law degree uh, from Columbia University. And uh, Robeson, uh, Dr. Du Bois, and other luminaries uh, at the conference, including Mary McLeod, Ellen Roosevelt was also a, uh, involved in, in, in this conference, uh, encouraged these students to join the struggle. Uh, and, and, and the Southern Negro Youth Congress's uh, primary mission was to uh, gain voting rights for blacks in the South. They were trying to um, influence um, our, our, our nation, if you will, to uh, our Congress uh, to pass legislation uh, that would be anti-lynching legislation. And they were concerned about civil and equal rights uh, within the South. And so that, that was their major platform. And so these luminaries at the conference encouraged the students to become involved. And so Hollowell goes back to Lane College after the conference and literally changes his major from biology uh, to social science and decides to become a lawyer. Wow. Um, how did he end up in Georgia? So he's in Kansas, he's in Tennessee. Was it the military service that landed him in Georgia where he decided to stay in practice? No, it was a Georgia peach named Louise. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. That will definitely do it. That will definitely. <laughs> so she was from Georgia? She, she, was, she was from Georgia and lived here in Atlanta and she managed a uh, beauty school uh, located on Auburn Avenue. 
uh, here in Atlanta. And uh, during Mr. Hollowell's uh, military service, she, she stayed here in Atlanta. And even during the time that he was uh, in law school uh, at Loyola, uh, she lived here. So when he um, completed uh, or finished law schools, uh, he had some motivation and desire, obviously, to return uh, to Georgia. I love it. She should take all the credit for yeah. every piece of work he did yeah. in, in the civil rights, um, at least as it relates to Georgia. Yeah. And she was a civil rights advocate. Uh, I was interested, as was noted earlier, uh, I think, was it Ruth? Uh, right. Yes. Uh, I, I would say that uh, similar to uh, what was related earlier, she was a uh, very, very, very strong uh, supporter and, 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 and activists in her own right. And I had to say, that was really impressive. The earlier panel, um, when Judge Thompson talked about how he took this oral history, apparently of the only spouse, um, uh, uh, Mrs. Johnson, and um, I'm assuming that's in the archives at the Institute. It is, it's, it's actually right now on the website for the Middle District. Um, there's a, a, a whole page of oral histories, and, and I'm sure you've seen some of them. And, uh, the oral history of Ms. Johnson is about three hours, wow. and it's fascinating. There are also oral histories from John Doerr uh, and um, other judges who were, middle, who were there in the Middle District. It struck me, I don't know how many, how many people actually read that letter that Daryl had up on the screen earlier? How many people read that? How many women, let me ask you this, how many women read that letter? Did you notice something? How it said the husbands were. <laughs> so I mean, it, I mean that was the times in 1969. The husbands were doing the business of the bar, and the women were doing something else. And I'm very proud of the fact that I would actually like all of the president-elects and presidents in this room who are women to stand up for just a moment and get a shout out. Please. <laughs> We've come a long way. We've got some work to do, but we've come a long way. Um, but I thought that was really um, interesting and telling that he thought it was that important to capture. And to the extent mm -hmm. that, that um, these women are figures that are even more hidden, uh, right. uh, to the extent that they're supporting Precisely. these men doing this amazing work. Absolutely. Um, shout out to them. Back to the program. Um, how did, best question, how did Mr. Hollowell decide, how did he hang out a shingle? How did he start taking in cases exactly? Well, when he uh, came to Georgia, and this was uh, 1952, uh, that was an attorney that I mentioned earlier, A.T. Walden, uh, who uh, was a University of Michigan grad, finished the University of Michigan in 1911. Uh, he, uh, Walden is from Fort Valley, Georgia. Uh, was practicing law here and had practiced law here for, uh, well, since 1911, wow. so uh, wow. it's a long time. And uh, he actually uh, encouraged Mr. Hollowell to uh, not only to practice law here, but encouraged him to become involved uh, in civil rights law. And so uh, that was part of uh, the way in which Mr. Hollowell became so involved uh, in civil rights. And I think it would be fair to say that uh, Hollowell succeeded uh, Walden as the chief civil rights lawyer. Walden, by that time, was probably in his 70s. And um, Hollowell, of course, was uh, right out of law school and, and a lot of energy and uh, certainly uh, capability and skills. And he s began to uh, take on a number of civil rights cases. Um, uh, and uh, Walden also connected him with Thurbert Marshall and the Legal Defense Fund. And so he began to take on cases that were uh, referred to him uh, by the Legal Defense Fund. 
because he sounds so young, you're answering these questions that I already had written down about how did he come to, to handle these sentinel cases? Yeah. Um, and I understood his reputation preceded him a year out of law school. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking I need to be nicer to the younger lawyers right. that I mentor. Yeah. They might know it a little bit more than right. you think they know, right? Um, to, to have done, to have had such an impact, frankly, right out you know right yeah. out of law school is as absolutely amazing and i'm sure that drew people to him sure but he also had cases being brought to him through these connections that's 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 correct and and he was an outstanding lawyer and an incredible um uh, man uh and and i believe had there been hundreds of lawyers um in georgia at that time who were doing civil rights law i think mr hollowell still would have been the chief lawyer however must bear in mind that in Georgia at that time, there were less than 10 African-American lawyers uh, in Atlanta. And so, uh, although he was a chief lawyer, he was, he was chief among the 10, okay? And, and actually, of those 10, only perhaps maybe three or four actually practiced civil rights law. And so we talked earlier about, before this program, early this morning, um, when we were preparing um, for today, we talked about um, what he did, what Mr. Uh, Hollowell did, actually to feed himself, to earn a living. It, they, they weren't, I was a little surprised, I never thought about this. I've heard his name, I've heard about these Sentinel cases before, um, certainly as a lawyer practicing in Georgia, but I'd never thought about the fact that he wasn't really making any money from these cases, right. which makes sense. So, so talk to us a little bit about how he made a living, what else did he do? And and yeah. to, for those of us, I, again, I never thought about it, why he wasn't making any money from mm -hmm. uh, these civil rights cases. Yeah, well, at, at least as he said to me, there was no money in civil rights law uh, during the 1950s and 1960s. I mean, even the most celebrated cases that he won, the Hunt v. Arnold case or the Holmes v. Dana case, that, that was no jury award. I mean, it's not like they got 100,000 or a million dollars or, or anything. In fact, he said he, didn't even have all of his fees paid by the legal defense fund uh, for his most celebrated case, which was the um, uh, Holmes v. Dana case in 1961. So in addition to practicing civil rights, uh, these lawyers had to earn a living. So they did wills and, and, and probate work and, 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 and they did uh, deeds and real estate. So they, were, they practiced general law in, in addition to their, their work uh, in civil rights uh, just to be able to uh, support uh, their families and, and, and obviously to keep uh, the lights on. It's almost um, amazing if you, I've, I have, um, in researching for this book, um, I, I looked at the NAACP uh, files um, and they chronicle the number of cases uh, that these lawyers in each state uh, uh, were working on mm -hmm. at any given time. It, it was hundreds. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to, and, and it was such a small group of them uh, that uh, were trying these cases. Um, I actually want to pause and we have about 10 minutes left or less, 15. I do want to open it up for anyone who has a question for any of the panelists, please come up and uh, Come to the mic. I'll wait. I'd like to know a little more about uh, uh, Mr. Hollowell's later career and, and, and so forth. And uh, in particular, I know that in 1964, he ran uh, against an incumbent judge in Fulton County, a man named Durwood T. Right, Pye, right. who was, um, 
I guess you might say, uh, an avowed segregationist. Uh, I think that's an understatement. What can you tell us about that? <laughs> uh, yes, uh, later on, Mr. Hollowell uh, did in fact run uh, for Superior uh, Court Judge, and he ran against a judge who he had had cases before on a number of occasions, and um, uh, Judge um, uh, Mr. Hollowell had precise diction, and uh, Judge Pye had a uh, problem pronouncing uh, the word Negro, and and Mr. Hollowell, he and Mr. Hollowell had had several rounds in. Oh, that was a purposeful. <laughs> yes. Pro okay, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. And, and uh, so it was a uh, Hollowell did not uh, win the election, but he he did 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 run a very robust race wow. against um, uh, uh, Judge uh, Pye, and. Um, in 1966, uh, Hollowell, I guess, ended his uh, career as a civil rights lawyer. Uh, he was appointed by uh, President uh, Johnson uh, as the uh, director of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission uh, for the region. And so he uh, began to work uh, on, on a federal level, so to speak, for uh, equal opportunity and equal rights. Um, I. Uh, belief uh, and, and in interviewing others who were his contemporaries uh, believed that he had a very difficult time adjusting to that role mm. because he had been such an advocate and such an activist for so many years and he was constrained to some extent by the bureaucracy mm. so to speak of that role and so he uh, was involved in the um, in many activities outside, if you will, of the Equal Opportunity Commission, such as he was uh, involved in voting rights and other kinds of things, I think just to sort of keep a hand uh, in uh, the movement, so to speak. So you answered the next question as to how his, his chief, going from chief um, criminal uh, civil rights attorney mm -hmm. uh, to working for the government right. uh, to some extent um, and uh, what that transition was like for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it I, sounds and like I, it was pretty challenging. Yeah, it, I think it was. I think it was. And, and I might add that uh, Hollowell was considered on um, two, two occasions uh, for um, uh, federal judgeships. Uh, he was, um, uh, and, and again, I know I'm in a room of, of lawyers and judges, but I think it's a judici judicial nominated committee. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yes. Get right? Okay. <laughs> uh, he was nominated uh, on. Uh, one occasion uh, during the time that President Johnson uh, was uh, president, uh, and um, he was nominated again uh, during the time uh, that President Carter uh, was nominated for consideration uh, to become a federal judge. And interestingly, uh, in uh, President Carter appointed Horace Ward uh, as a federal judge. Uh, it's, that's interesting because uh, in, in, in many ways, Hollowell trained Ward, uh, and, and, and Ward was his uh, law partner, and, and certainly Ward was his, his mentee, and, and credits Hollowell in, in large measure uh, with his career and, and, and for becoming a judge. But it's kind of interesting that uh, they both were nominated mm -hmm. by this commission, and Horace Ward, his mentee, uh, became a federal judge. Well, to round out, oh, I'm sorry, yes, sir. So what was, the, what was the mood within the Georgia bar 
when Mr. Hollowell came out and started taking on these cases and uh, taking on this cause, was he accepted? Was he admired? Was he ostracized? How, how was he treated within the bar? Uh, I, I would say all of the above, all of the above. I mean, I think that he was treated um, uh, uh, fairly uh, by many, and I think he was treated unfairly uh, by some. And, and I think that, um, as was noted earlier, um, we can't take anything away and we certainly can't diminish uh, the hard work, the dedication, uh, the commitment, the sacrifice, the fearlessness of Donald Hollowell and, and others. But in order for social change to have occurred, uh, it also uh, involved the bar. And it was Frank Johnson in Alabama, but in Georgia, it was federal judge William Booth and, 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 and federal judge Boyd Sloan. Uh, they were key in moving our society forward. I interviewed uh, Judge Boodle uh, he was 99 years young and as spry as he could be at his home in Macon when I was working on this book. And he talked about how difficult it was for him to render uh, the Holmes v. Downer decision uh, in favor of uh, Holmes and Hunter. And what he said to me was that it was a difficult decision because of the culture uh, that he lived in and from the pushback uh, and, and, and uh, that uh, he had in, in Macon. Uh, and um, he said he grew up in a segregated community, uh, a segregated way of life, uh, and the mores and customs were totally different, so to speak. But he used the word wedded. He said, I was not wedded to that. I was wedded to the law and I was wedded to the Constitution. So despite the fact that my family did not, or some members of my family did not want me to make this decision, it was the right decision. And, and because I was wedded to the law and the Constitution, uh, I made uh, the right decision. So I think there was certainly, uh, some members of the bar were very supportive, uh, but some members of the bar uh, were not, as I indicated, um, uh, 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 some of you may, uh, from Georgia, may know Judge John Ruffin, uh, who uh, was a uh, Court of Appeals judge. Also known as Jack. Also known as Jack Ruffin, okay. Um, he practiced law and tried cases with Mr. Hollowell, uh, civil rights cases, and he, t and, he, and he told me a story about, uh, they were trying a case in Augusta, Georgia, and the judge in the case, anytime Mr. Hollowell would get up to speak, would literally swivel around and turn his back to Mr. Hollowell. Oh. And he talked about how Mr. Hollowell handled it with such class and with grace, with such grace and with such dignity. So certainly there were members of the bar such as the uh, federal judge Boodles and the federal judge uh, uh, Boyd Sloan's and Johnson's and others, but there were also some members of the bar who were disrespectful and, and, and downright nasty. So thinking about these, um what we learned today about these transformational leaders, um, Judge Johnson, Mr. Hollowell, I would like each of you to, to help us end this panel, unless there's some other question that you want to have answered right now. Um, we're going to end this panel with each of you giving me your thoughts about today's transformational leaders. 
um, and where we stand. Because what struck me in just preparing for today um, was how much we don't know and how without folks like you all capturing either formally in an institute or in a book, the, the contributions these folks have made and the chronicling the struggles that they've gone through, that information gets lost at some point. Um, and I think it's yeah, to the extent that, you know, his, if you don't know your history, you're, you know, you're bound to repeat it. Where are we today in, in developing those folks who have the courage to do what Judge Johnson did, um, to have the courage to do what Mr. Hollowell did? Um, it's a very broad question. Have at it, Mr. Canfield. It, it, that is a very difficult question. I think in, in part, the people that are doing that now, we probably don't all have a good sense of who they are. Um, I mean, at the time Judge Johnson was making his decisions, I mean, they were very, I mean, a number of them were very famous. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't think there was a general recognition around the, in other parts of the country of, of, of what he was, what he was doing. Um, I think we tend to get that after the fact, unfortunately. Um, but I'm, I am convinced there are people doing now what the kinds of things Judge Johnson and Donald Hallwell did during their time. Is your mic on? Yes, it is. Okay. I think, uh, you know, as, as Peter mentioned at the, this morning at the outset, Judge Johnson was 37 years old when he was appointed to the bench. And it was six months later when he had to, to decide on this case that, that stemmed from, uh, from Rosa Parks being arrested. Um, and that took a significant amount of courage, especially as, you know, living in Montgomery, as we've heard. Um, and he sat on the bench, you know, for, for decades after that. And one thing that has stood out to me is, is uh, in this, as we work on getting the, the Judge Frank Johnson Institute started, is the, the significant respect that people had for him and his sense of fairness. Um, in the, the 70s, he was considered for um, FBI director uh, and uh, for health reasons did not get appointed to that role. But um, one of the, the uh, things that came out of that was this uh, from one of his former law clerks who said that he was as respected by law enforcement as he was by civil libertarians. And I think in, in the climate we're in today, that stands out uh, as significant for the sense of fairness that he had and the the dignity he, he uh, treated people with in, in his courtroom. Yeah, and I was just sort of uh, ditto that. I, th I believe that um, social change occurs mm -hmm. because of a uh, coalescence of individuals and it occurs because of a coalescence of uh, events and sometimes things are, are known and sometimes they, they are not known. So we, we, we may not know the names of all of the individuals who are involved and we may not know of all of the programs or the events, but I, I would submit that there are uh, things that are going on in uh, every community, uh, in every state, uh, individuals who are concerned uh, about the environment, individuals who are concerned about um, uh, equal justice for, for women or LGBT or whatever the case may be. There are individuals who are engaged uh, and uh, I think we have to encourage that. 
but we also have to, you know, tell our history, so to speak, and, and, and the full history, because sometimes those events that are not celebrated, uh, they kind of mm. get, 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 get lost uh, to history. So that's why I think it's so important to have uh, panels and programs such as uh, this institute here today. I completely agree. Um, as the struggle for equality continues and race relations discussions continue, um, and we continue to live on this earth together as human beings, um, as well as lawyers and judges uh, practicing and supporting the justice system. Uh, conversations like this, presentations like this are really important. And again, I'm just really proud to have been a part of it and to have you all be a part of it today. Thank the panel. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Professor Daniels. You're welcome. Thomas, thank you for pitch hitting. <laughs> and Peter, thank you for returning to the batter's box. We appreciate that. As I mentioned earlier, this program is one of three ways that we are bringing into plain view these hidden legal figures. Later this afternoon, you're going to tour the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, and I know you're going to enjoy what you see, but I want you to pay attention to what you don't mm. see. Mm. You will not see any reference to Mr. Hollowell, to Mr. Johnson, to Mr. Tuttle, to Judge Boyd. You won't see any inclusion of what the legal profession meant to the movement and to the nation. So in partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, we are developing a traveling exhibit that will premiere in February 2021. The State Bar of Georgia in December of 2017 endorsed and adopted that exhibit as a bar initiative. Under the color of law will be four theme-styled immersive exhibits that trace the history of the legal profession's role in the human and civil rights from the colonial period all the way through the modern civil rights movement. These programs we've also held at our partner law schools throughout the state. Our own executive director, Jeff Davis, has used the Georgia Bar Journal, his column in a monthly basis to highlight some of the figures that we've talked about in our programs. It's a very good read, so if you, don't, if, you, if you want to read it, please go online and look at some of those columns. And if you forget to do that, don't let him leave the room or leave this conference without you talking about some of the people that he's written about. So Jeff, really appreciate that. And in a conversation earlier in this year, in March, with Peter, as we were preparing for this program, Peter mentioned to me the possibility of a podcast. Now, Daryl, Peter doesn't know this, but at the moment that he said that, I thought, as if I don't have enough to do, here is someone giving me one more thing to think about. Peter sent me some information, and from that particular moment, I was struck by the fact that there was an opportunity to extend the educational outreach of what we're doing. So while we do have our programs in law schools, and we want to have programs in your state as well, because there are hidden legal figures in Virginia, in South Carolina, in Florida, in Mississippi, in Alabama, in Louisiana, in Kentucky, in Arkansas, that need to be highlighted and spotlighted just like we've done today. So call us, because we're the experts in getting that done. The podcast that we're doing was launched this past Tuesday. So this conference 
we're going to take snippets from what we've talked about today, and it will be a podcast episode. So your those who ask questions, we're going to get you on. We're going to get you on that on-demand platform as well. So look out for look out for yourself. You want to be on that? The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. That's where we take our name from. And what you heard today about Attorney Hollowell and Judge Johnson, these are individuals who actually bent that arc. I actually like to call them our professional ancestors. And today's program was sort of a reading of the will, Ken, what they bequeathed to us as members of this noble profession. We hope that today's program has inspired you to spend your inheritance wisely. But no one says it better than our national honorary chair, Vernon Jordan, when he says that lawyers have bent that arc, and it is lawyers that must continue to lead that charge. Take this information and go forth in your charge. Thank you, panelists. Thank you, Daryl. It has been our pleasure to be with you here with you today. In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions of lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in February 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net.